Luke chapter 2, continue where we looked, stopped last week, although this will be the last time we're in Luke. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We'll read through verse 20. Again, very familiar words to us. Words maybe that as a child I was frustrated with because we had to read them before we could open our Christmas presents. So as I read them, I'm remembering that angst, um, but yet great words and reminders for us. Follow along in your copy of God's Word, if you would, as I read. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pause one more time asking God for his help as we come to his word. Father, we ask now that as we have read your word, that you would now write your word on our hearts. Father, we we recognize that what we need in this moment is more than Uh, what human effort, human ability can accomplish, but we need your spirit to work taking your word and changing us from the inside out, Father. Would you help us to understand, Father, but more than just mentally understand, Father, we, we just ask that we will be changed as you have promised to do, changed as we come to your word. Increase our faith this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this Advent season, as we anticipate Christmas, as we long for Christmas, as maybe you're counting down the days and if you have an Advent calendar, you're flipping off the windows on your calendars, maybe shaking your presents. I don't know if you have presents under your tree yet or not. Uh, but during this time, as we look forward to, to Christmas, we are spending these Sundays hearing again the familiar words of the story of that very first Christmas. And we're looking at these passages that tell us that story through the lens of it being a story. The great story, the the greatest story ever told. That's the title of our Advent series this year, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And the greatest part about this story is that it's a true story. And as we saw last week, because it is true, it has changed everything. It's changed everything in history, but it has changed everything about your history and my history. It has changed everything about our lives, not just for the here and now, but for eternity. 
We're never going to stop marveling at. We're never going to stop recounting and retelling the events of this story. But that brings us to our verses today, because as we look at Luke's account of the shepherds, what we realize is that the role that they play in this story is that they are the very first ones to hear this story. And not only that, but they are the very first ones to tell this story to others. The shepherds are the first in a long line of those who tell the story of Christmas. They are the first storytellers. And when I worked at Sam Yoder and Son, I would often spend my day as I, as I worked, I would often listen to stories. I would listen to audiobooks. And as I did that, I discovered that one of the most important parts about choosing an audiobook to listen to was, was not only in the choosing of the book, but also in choosing the one that had the right storyteller. Because the storyteller could take a great story and make it a very boring story. Or it could make it a very hard to listen to story. So if I was going to spend 10 to 15 hours or more listening to someone tell me a story, I wanted to make sure they were a good storyteller. Last week we saw that God is writing the greatest story ever told. But the question is, who would He choose to be the storytellers? We saw last week that God had planned and He had prepared for this moment, for Christ to come at this exact moment. So who was it that He had planned as the ones who would tell this story? Well, just as this baby who is God Himself, this one line in the manger is the eternal Son of God, the greatest being of all, and we see Him placed in an animal's feeding trough. We see that God takes this incredible message And he places it on the lips of shepherds. That's where our verses begin. In verse 8, week. Man, we're all the way at the end. You got excited when you saw that, didn't you? You just got the whole, whole sermon. There we go. Ordinary shepherds on an ordinary night. That's where our verses begin in verse 8. A night that was just like every other night for these shepherds. You know, if you don't know what happens after verse 8, you might read verse 8 and you might wonder why this is even in the Bible because what is contained in this verse is is so mundane. Luke records that there were shepherds out in their field and they were doing what shepherds do, keeping watch over their flock by night. In fact, that phrase, keeping watch, if you were to translate it literally, would be watching watch. Sounds like a exciting beginning to a great story. The shepherds were watching, watch. It doesn't get more mundane than that. But you can picture this scene. It's nighttime. There's probably a fire lit. Several of the shepherds have dozed off to sleep because it's not their hour to keep watch. Their hour will come later in the night. The the ones who are awake are softly talking to one another, probably fighting sleep themselves. Occasionally they might give a glance over to the sheep and do a quick count to make sure they're all there. For these shepherds, it was an ordinary night. Nothing out of the norm was expected to take place on this night. But as we think about history and as we think about biblical history, we, we, we know and we see that this is often, on all, it's often on nights like this, on times like these where God writes the next story in His story. Moses, like these shepherds, he was out tending his sheep in the wilderness when he noticed that a bush was on fire, but not burning up. 
Gideon was threshing wheat when God called him to be the one to free Israel from the hands of Midian. Elisha was out plowing his field when God showed up and called him to be a prophet. And we could go on and on throughout Bible history, but also throughout world history. When God interrupts ordinary nights like the one we find in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2 and does an extraordinary work. But not only does verse 8 tell us of a very ordinary night, it tells us of some very ordinary people. In fact, we might even say less than ordinary. They were shepherds. Again, if you were choosing the storyteller, who would you choose? Most of us would not choose shepherds. Especially when we understand who the shepherds were and how shepherds were viewed in that day. The other day, a Facebook memory popped up on my phone from two years ago when Noah was in kindergarten. It was a picture of him dressed as a shepherd with a few of his friends. And, and that's often what we think of and what we picture in our minds when we think of, uh, of these shepherds. We think of, of cute little shepherds that we see in our nativity scenes. Cute little shepherds who, who seem to fit right in at the scene of Christ's birth. But in actuality, nothing could be further from the truth. No one fit in less at the birth of the Messiah than shepherds, at least in the eyes of Jews. Shepherds were viewed as the lowest of low people. Randy Alcorn says, in Christ's day, shepherds stood at the bottom rung on the Palestinian social ladder. They, they shared the same unenviable status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. And then he says only Luke mentions them, which I never thought of that before. But, but Luke is the only gospel, maybe, maybe Mark, but Mark's written from the perspective of Peter. So, so Luke is really the only Gentile gospel writer, and he's the only one who includes the shepherds. The Mishnah, which was a written collection of all the oral traditions of the Jews at that time, the, Nish, the Mishnah says that shepherds, they, they, it describes shepherds as completely incompetent. In fact, in one passage, it says that if, if you came across the shepherd who had fallen into a pit, you did not have to feel obligated to rescue them. This was the perspective of shepherds in the day of, of Christ. Shepherds weren't allowed to testify in a court of law because their testimony was considered unreliable. They were not trustworthy. Yet again, these are the ones God chooses to be the first ones to witness and the first ones to testify about the birth of Christ. Shepherds were also viewed as unclean, not just dirty, but, but religiously, ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. Uh, Warren Worsby writes, their work as shepherds not only made them ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, but it kept them from the temple. They would spend months at a time out with their sheep, so they could not come to the temple to worship and come to the temple to be made clean. Jeremiah, a Jewish scholar of that day, said to buy wool, milk, or or a kid, which is a baby goat, not a child, but a kid, from a shepherd, was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. This is how shepherds were viewed. You just assumed that they were liars and you assumed that they were thieves. Now, many of us know this already, but again, it's a helpful reminder It's helpful to be reminded of just how incredible it is that God chose shepherds to be the first ones at the bedside of Christ. When we had our children, there was a list of people we contacted before we made the news public on social media. 
Shepherds were first on God's list. Robert Stein gives us a good warning when he says that we need to be careful not to romanticize the occupation of shepherds, which we tend to do in our nativity scenes. One should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. Don't romanticize them, Stein warns. They were probably considered dishonest because they were dishonest. They were probably viewed as unclean because they were unclean. Shepherds were rough around the edges. Their language was probably coarse. Their humor most likely crude. Their lifestyle deviant. The saying of that day might have been, Mama, don't let your kids grow up to be shepherds. Shepherds were not cute and cuddly. Shepherds were hooligans. Shepherds were sinners. But yet to these shepherds, these ordinary shepherds, comes extraordinary news. And from the ordinary in verse 8, the scene drastically changes in verse 9 to an extraordinary sight with with extraordinary news. The shepherds are visited first by one angel and then by a whole host of angels. And the scene of Luke chapter 2 goes from the shepherds watching watch to these same shepherds being filled with incredible fear, with great fear. I love how the phrase reads in the Greek, phobos megas. I don't, I don't know Greek, but I know what that's trying to tell us. It was great fear. It was a great phobia. It was a mega phobia. The shepherds were phobos megas. Or as the NIV simply says, they were terrified. They were terrified. But but what was it that caused them to be filled with this great fear? Why, why were they why were they so terrified? Was it the angel? Well, it could have been the angel. I mean, we would probably, if we were sitting out in the middle of a hillside where no one else was for miles, and suddenly out of nowhere an angel showed up, we would probably be a little bit terrified. But if you look back at chapter 1 of Luke, where an angel visits two different people, Zechariah and Mary, there is the fear of mention, but the first reaction to the angels is that they're troubled or confused. So why are these shepherds filled with great fear? So much so that the angel has to quickly say to them, fear not, before they head for the hills. I think this fear is a reaction to a phrase that we often overlook in verse 9. Luke says that not only did the angel appear to them, but the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Often when we think of this scene, what we might picture as the glory of the Lord is kind of a soft glow that accompanies the angel. Or maybe a a warm ambiance that kind of filled the hillside on that cold night outside of Bethlehem. But if we look at other places in the Bible where the glory of the Lord shows up, we see that it was something much likely very different than that. Because the glory of the Lord throughout the Scripture refers to the very manifestation of the presence of God on earth. So what Luke is saying is that not only did some angels show up, but God Himself showed up. And when God shows up, most often that is a terrifying scene. 
In Exodus, when Moses and the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai and Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, it says that as Moses goes up the mountain, the glory of the Lord comes down upon the mountain and envelops it. And Moses records that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And before that, it says that the earth shook and that trumpets blasted and that the mountain started to smoke like a kiln as the glory of the Lord showed up at Mount Sinai. In Second Chronicles, after the temple of Solomon is dedicated, it says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple and it filled the temple to the point that the priests couldn't even get into the temple because it was so thick was the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 3, when Ezekiel encounters the glory of the Lord, he, he can't even stand up, but he falls on his face. In Psalm 138, it simply says, For great is the glory of the Lord. This is why the shepherds are terrified. Because the greatness of the glory of the Lord, it says, shone around them. Almost as if they were enveloped in this glory. It was an extraordinary sight. But in fact, even more extraordinary than that sight was the message that accompanied it. If we think about this scene and maybe think of some of these other images and what that might have looked like in Bethlehem on that night, what message would you expect to be coming on a night like that? We'd probably expect a message of judgment. After all, these were unclean shepherds before the presence of the glory of the holy God. There's a reason that they were terrified because they knew what they should expect. But the message that they received as they are in the midst of a display of God's power and might is the news of God's mercy and His grace. Luke 10 says the message that comes to them is, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The NIV says that will cause great joy and that will be for all the people. The phrase bring good news is the phrase evangelizo which is where we get our word evangelize. Here are the first ones evangelized after the coming of Christ. And they're evangelized by angels. We bring you good news, which is going to cause great joy. But what is this good news? This good news is the news that a Savior has been born. And in verse 11, Luke puts three words together that are not found together in any other place in the Bible. And we're familiar with these three words and we're familiar with them being associated to Christ. But only here do we find the words Savior, Christ, and Lord together in one place. The message that the angels bring these shepherds is that someone has come to save them. To Joseph, it was told that the mission of this one who has come is that he would save his people from their sins. He is the Savior But not only is He the Savior, He's the Christ, He's the Messiah, He's the Anointed One, He's the One that they as Jews have been long waiting for. But perhaps most amazing of all is that He is Lord. He is God Himself. God has come. But but how has He come? He has come in a most extraordinary way. He has come as a baby. John Chrysostom says this, how shall I describe this birth to you? 
For this wonder fills me with astonishment. The Ancient of Days has become an infant. He who sits upon the, upon the sublime and heavenly throne now lies in a manger. He who cannot be touched now lies subject of the hands of men. He who has broken the bonds of sinner, sinners is now bound by an infant's bands. How shall I describe this birth to you? The wonder fills me with astonishment. This is how he has come. But who has he come for? This is perhaps the most remarkable part of this whole story. The angels tell the shepherds. The angels tell these ones who were the despised ones. These ones who were the lonely ones. These ones who were considered unclean. He tells them he has come for you. For unto you, shepherds, is born this day a Savior. Unto you. But then the angel goes on in verse 12 to say something that would let these shepherds know for sure that this Savior had in fact come for them. A few years ago we went through this passage in a different Advent series focusing on the songs that surround the birth of Christ. And I remember going, as I went through that, I remember being struck by the significance that verse 12 comes after verse 11. Imagine if the angels had not given the angels or the shepherds the details of verse 12 first of all they wouldn't have known where to begin to or where to look for this baby they would have known that he was born in bethlehem that's what the city of david referred to but bethlehem was overrun with people due to the census where where would they start to look for him but not only would they have not known where to look for him they wouldn't have known that they should or that they could look for him Because without verse 12, where would we expect the baby, the Messiah, to be found? Perhaps he would be found in a royal crib with royal bedsheets. Or maybe in the house of the local rabbi or scribe. Maybe in the home of the wealthiest Jew of Bethlehem. That's where they would expect the Messiah to be found. But those places are not places where they are welcomed. Because they are shepherds. They've had run-ins with those kinds of people before in the past, and they know that they're not welcome at the side of their child. Without verse 12, the angels would disappear and the shepherds would go back to their watching watch. Perhaps after a few days or a few weeks, they might begin to wonder if they just imagined the angels and the message that they had brought to them. But the good news is that there is a verse 12. And in verse 12, the angels tells them something that lets them know that this shepherd has actually come for them. Because they say they will find this baby in a place where they know that they're welcome to come. Because this baby has been placed in a manger. In fact, maybe only shepherds would go looking for a baby placed in a manger. This news was announced to the religious elite. The news that a baby was born in a manger... They would know that this baby was born to parents who were most likely unclean. They couldn't have themselves becoming unclean to go see this baby. After all, if he's in a manger, I'm sure he's messy and fussy. If this news would have been announced to the wealthy, they, they wouldn't want to dirty themselves by approaching a manger. If it was announced to royalty, well, royalty had people to go and deal with things that took place in a manger. Why would they go? But shepherds, shepherds know all about mangers. This child had not only come for them, but he had come as one of them. He had been placed 
in a manger. This good news was truly good news for them. But not only do these shepherds go from being those who were the first evangelized to, even perhaps more amazing is they go and become the first evangelists. And these ordinary storytellers, these ordinary shepherds who come in contact with this extraordinary message become the ordinary storytellers with an extraordinary story to tell. The storytellers, very ordinary. But the story that they tell, the story that they go out proclaiming is extraordinary. And as, and it seems in verse 18 that they tell everyone. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told him, told them. The first tellers of the story of Christmas are these shepherds. Again, is this who you would have chosen? But this is exactly the type of people that God chooses time and time again. As this baby in a manger grows, who, who did he choose as those who would, who he would pour his life into and send out as his disciples? Many of them were fishermen, ordinary men. One was a tax collector, one who was someone who was despised and hated by men, and particularly his fellow Jews. He was hated by them. When these these men, these disciples, stand before the Sanhedrin after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the, the Sanhedrin, who were the religious elite, the ones who you would think would be the ones telling the story of the Messiah. But when they look at these ordinary men telling this incredible story and, and lives who had been changed by this incredible story, they don't know what to make of it. The only thing that they can say is that these men have come in contact with Jesus. These men who are common, uneducated men. The only thing we can explain about them is that they have been with Jesus. The storytellers, uneducated common men, but the story was life-changing. Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says that God has taken this incredible story. God has taken the gospel and he has placed it inside jars of clay. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But we have this treasure, this treasure of God shining His light into our hearts, giving us the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has placed this treasure into jars of clay. Jars of clay in Paul's day were like the, temp- the Tupperware of the first century. I don't know if you have a, a drawer full of Tupperware containers at your house, or at least a, uh, we have a drawer full of Tupperware containers and, and a few of the lids that actually match those Tupperware containers. I don't know where all the lids went. But, but Tupperware containers are, are common containers. Everyone has them. And they're not worth much. When one goes bad or you lose its lid, you eventually get rid of it and just go buy another. But th- that's what jars of clay were in the first century. They were common, cheap, and ordinary. Most people had them in their home and you'd expect to find, you'd, you'd find the kinds of things in them that you'd expect to find in ordinary containers. You'd, they'd keep their olive oil in them. They'd keep their leftovers in them. Maybe, maybe they'd keep a few loose change in them. But they never placed anything valuable in a jar of clay. But Paul says God has taken this incredible treasure. He has taken the gospel and he has placed it into these common 
jars of clay which represent him and which represent us as Christians. Earlier in his writings to the Corinthians, he says, don't forget that you are nothing but a jar of clay. Verse one or chapter one, verses 26 through 29 says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. Here, here the shepherds. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So people would not go away being impressed with the storytellers, but so that they would go away being amazed at the story, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, Corinthians, don't forget your shepherds. God called you not because you were powerful. God called you not because you were mighty. Not because you were influential. In fact, He called you for the complete opposite reason. He called you because you were very ordinary. But He calls ordinary men and women so that through them He might tell this incredible and extraordinary story. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred by the Aka Indians, he, he understood this and he, he said of him and his friends, He said, we're just a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. We're just a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody with a capital S, which we know refers to God. It started with the shepherds, but now for 2,000 years it has continued through many other ordinary men and women telling this extraordinary story. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospels, and it's the story of Legion. If you were with us as we went through Mark, you remember the the story of Legion. He was called Legion because he had a legion of demons that possessed him. But then this man who at that time when Jesus met him first, he lived among the tombs. He was covered with scrapes and cuts because he made himself unclean or because he, he cut himself trying to rid himself of his affliction. He ran around naked. This is how Jesus met him. His life was in shambles. His life was a mess. But then he met Jesus and his life changed drastically. But then what does God do with a man like Legion? He turns him into evangelist. The the story of Legion ends with Jesus telling him this. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So what did Legion do? He went home. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for you. For him and everyone marveled. Kent Hughes tells the story of an ophthalmologist who just fresh from college and was starting his business, but he had no friends, he had no money, and didn't have any patrons. And so he began to become discouraged. Till one day he saw a blind man. And looking into his eyes, he said, Why don't you have your eyesight restored? Come to my office in the morning. The blind man went and when the operation was performed and it was proved successful, the patient said, I've got a problem. I don't have a penny in the world. I can't pay you. Oh, yes, the doctor said, you can pay me and I expect you to do so. There is just one thing I want you to do and it's very easy. Tell everybody you see that you were blind and tell them who it was who healed you. This is what God has done for each of us. We were blind, but now we see. 
We were lost, but now we are found. We were dead in our sins, but through Christ we have been made alive. So what do we do? We tell everyone we know who it was who healed us. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if you have been reconciled to Christ, well, you have a new job description. You are now a minister of reconciliation. God has entrusted to you this message that reconciles lost, poor sinners to the holy God. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's this great story in a nutshell. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you been reconciled to God? Is, Is that verse, that last verse, verse 21, is that your story? If so, then you have been given a job. You have been given a mission. You have been given a ministry. Don't pay me to be the minister alone, but we have all been given a ministry. And that is that we go out with the message of reconciliation. We have been called to be proclaimers of that good news that causes great joy. I love how the story of the shepherds ends in verse 20. It says that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds, like Legion, they go back to their homes. They go back to their fields. But they go back as completely changed people. And they go back, actually, to that hillside. And now they have taken the job of the angels. And there on that hillside, though the angels are gone, the glory of the Lord and the praises of God is still sounding from the hills outside of Bethlehem. Because these ordinary men had been changed by an extraordinary God. Peter says, if that is our story, then this is our mission. If you are a chosen race, but but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. But don't let those things distract you because before that but, we were all shepherds. We were all lost. We were all broken and in need of a Savior. But now you're a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Here's why. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is what the shepherds did on that first Christmas morning. May we follow their pattern. Ordinary men and women telling the extraordinary, life-changing story of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have come for us. That You have come for us through Jesus Christ. You have sent Your Son to redeem us, to rescue us, to do what we could not do, and that is to bring us salvation. Father, may we be reminded of that fact that there was nothing that we could do. Maybe some of us need a little bit of the wake-up call that the shepherds had on that hillside, that we need to be reminded of the glory of the Lord that causes great fear in our lives. Father, so that we can see and hear and recognize our need for grace, our need for mercy, our dependence upon Your grace in every moment of our lives. But Father, as we recognize that, Father, may our lips not be closed, but may our lips be like those shepherds who told everyone the message of what You have done for us in Christ. 
Father, if there's a, there are those here who have never responded to that message. Father, there were many who heard that message from the shepherds and all, all they did was wonder and be amazed. Father, there's many this Christmas season that will be filled with wonder and amazement at the story of Christmas, but never come and bow before the Christ of Christmas. Father, there are those here who have not made that decision, have not responded to that good news and aren't experiencing that great joy. I pray that they would. Father, I pray that you would cause in their heart the light of the knowledge of you in the face of Jesus Christ to shine into their hearts. Father, for us, may we, for the rest of us, may we just proclaim that message this Christmas season. This world is a dark place and it seems to be getting darker. How much better a time to shine the light of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, do you have a closing song on your mind? Then why don't you, why don't you come up and do that? Why don't you stand as we, as we do, as we sing?